The following episode contains content on sexual violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. Please note that the contents of model mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on model mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about Model Mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. Today on the podcast, we have with us Carrie Otis. Carrie Otis is a supermodel, survivor, and author. Carrie appeared in campaigns for Guess and Calvin Klein, and on the American and international covers of Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Marie Claire, and others. Carrie was 17 when she was scouted, and then sent from New York to Paris to live with former president of elite Europe, Gerald Marie, who repeatedly raped her. Carrie recently traveled to Paris, where she and a dozen other survivors testified against Marie. Carrie also recently filed a civil case in New York before the state's Child Victims Act look-back window closed. Carrie, a longtime member of the Model Alliance Leadership Council, still models and is currently represented by iconic Focus Models and all-women-owned agency. So Carrie, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. We're really excited to have you here and hear your story. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And the way I want to structure how we speak today, I want to hear a little bit about your life before the age of 17, when you started modeling and what your life was like. And then we'll go forward into what happened with sexual violence and more recently in the past year. So let's go back. You know, Tell us a little bit about what age you were when you started modeling, how you got scouted, and what your life was like uh, up until the age of 17. Yeah, so, wow, so much happened. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) So much happened before before 17, and I really look at it that it it paved the way for what transpired in my life. Um, I was from a very dysfunctional family. They're the first to admit that they were dysfunctional. Um, And I was diagnosed with dyslexia before really there were treatments for dyslexia and before there was a lot known about dyslexia. And that diagnosis really sort of uh, shaped 
how I felt about myself and definitely being in class and not understanding and not being in, you know, the box that other kids fit in. Um, it was very clear to me that I was different, that I learned differently. And sadly, you know, because there was little known about dyslexia in that time, I was characterized as slow, as stupid, as lazy. And so for me, there was really, um, it was a really challenging time. And this was also impacted by the fact that I was, you know, in a family that had their own crisis and issues and didn't really have the bandwidth or the tools to effectively support me in that journey. Um, so from the beginning, my relationship to education was really challenged. Um, and, and it made school a very hard place to be. Um, Carrie, do you mind if I ask you, how old were you when you were diagnosed with dyslexia? Yeah, I was in third grade. Um, so would that be like 10? <laughs> yeah. I and mean, that's early. And the, and what you described, you know, the stigma, the bullying, you know, how did that all happen or how did it, how did it come to be that, you know, people would call you those things or was it something that you carried internally? You know, it was definitely something that my teachers, you know, put upon me. Um, and it, it really, it appeared, you know, that I wasn't trying and that I wasn't making the same effort as other kids. And until I was diagnosed, you know, it was just, it was really horrible and challenging um, because that was not the case. And in my little mind, you know, I was trying so hard and really just did not learn the way other kids learned. Um, so there was frustration with the teachers. The teachers were frustrated with me. And uh, I went through a series of testing where I was diagnosed. Um, and I'd like to say, you know, wow, well, putting a label on it was helpful. But in that time frame, it actually really wasn't. And I was going to a private school at the time. And the private school actually said to my parents that they didn't have the resources to help me. So I was I was then transferred into a public school, which, of course, as you can imagine, was even worse, you know, totally ill-equipped to deal with the challenges that I had. And so, you know, really from a young age, um, school was just painful for me. And that really continued on through um, through my early years, definitely through all of my elementary school and then um, middle school and actually, when I was in my first year of high school, I was only 14 and my first real love committed suicide. Oh, my uh, goodness. And that was, again, you know, such a blow and and so confusing to deal with such loss um, at such an early age. And, and it really was at that point I kind of imploded. Um, I became a teenage runaway. I dropped out of school. And, you know, all of this I look back at and it really contributed to the fact that, you know, once I was scouted um, at 16, um, I was, you know, perfect for trafficking. And that's what that's what happened. I was scouted and trafficked to from San Francisco to New York State and from New York to Paris. You said you're, you talked about the dysfunctionality of your family. Can you just in, in brief explain what that meant or what that yeah. means? You know, I, I look back and I realize, you know, we all do the best we can with what we have. And I think definitely being a product of, you know, I was born in 1968 
And I was born to a family that had, you know, generational trauma and wounds. Um, and my parents did not have the tools and skills to, and the resources to get help. It wasn't like it is today where, you know, therapy is just a phone call away. There was a lot of stigma on families that had to seek counseling and go to therapy. Um, my father had broken his back and his neck at when I was just five years old. And so he actually ended up becoming a drug addict and an alcoholic to manage his pain. Um, and so the dysfunctional family I was in really was a family that was keeping a lot of secrets and trying, you know, typical 70s, trying to make sure everything looked okay. Um, but on the inside, you know, the family really was falling apart and um, and they they really weren't able to be there for me. And I was a challenged child. Um, yeah, so that's what that looked like. Yeah, and in that context, so family difficulties and then your own internal socio and emotional difficulties plus this loss. Yeah. So so tell us then what it meant to be scouted for you at 16 and then let's talk about what happened at 17. Yeah, so because I had dropped out of school um and because of sort of the stigma I felt on myself about not being smart enough and uh, and then dropping out and not having an education, you know, I looked at my young life and was wondering, you know, what the hell am I going to do to take care of myself? Um, and modeling was the only thing I thought I might have a shot at. Um, so I literally remember looking in a phone book and finding an agent in San Francisco, Gary Loftus of Gary Loftus Model Management, um, a gay man in the Castro in San Francisco called him up and basically just said, you know, I want a model. And he said, come in, let's talk. He agreed to pay for, you know, cause everything costs test shoots cost. Uh, he agreed to pay for a test shoot for me. And those pictures were faxed to John Casablancas in New York. And there, there your career started. There my well, there was the first attempt at a career starting. Um, it was actually, yeah, it was it was a it it didn't go smoothly. <laughs> Let's say, you know, I was this young punk rebel. Uh, I was seventeen when I was sent to New York. Um, I had not been in New York City. I didn't know what winters were like. I didn't have a dime to my name. Um, I was brought into New York to the model's apartment, which was essentially like a warehouse of young women, of wayward young women, um, all hoping that, you know, a career would break. Um, and New York was tough. I, I, how did they say it? I basically looked too European to make it in the American market. And then when I got to Europe, I looked too American to make it in the European market. So it was, it was a tough time. Um, and I was, I, I really look at it and I look back and if you look at sort of the perfect um, landscape for, you know, trafficking a minor, you know, I was it, I was a runaway. I didn't have parents. I didn't have mentors at the time. Um, so I was really on my own and um kind of prime for, for what was to unfold. And also, you know, you look at the industry and you look at our, our, you know, just 
the mentality of somebody who's 17. I mean, not equipped at all to deal with the very adult problems that are presented in the modeling industry. So Carrie, then tell us a little bit about what happened. You know, you went from San Francisco to New York to Paris, and we know because you're public about it, um, you were raped by someone in your industry, workplace sexual violence, and repeatedly. So can you tell us what you're comfortable talking about, about what happened? Yeah, so I, um, I was basically sent to Paris uh, to a known perpetrator. Uh, there were already there was already conversation and rumors at the time um, that Gerald Marie uh, was a problem. And when I was sent to Paris and told that I was going to stay in the boss's apartment, I actually naively thought that that might be a good thing. Uh, that I might be sort of a chosen one and that maybe somebody saw something in me that I was going to perhaps make it. And I thought it was a good thing to go stay with the boss. I thought I was somebody special. Um, Within two weeks of arriving in Paris, um, the first sexual assault happened in the middle of the night and I was raped. And then this went on for several months. Um, And really because he held the position of power and I literally, you know, was dependent upon him for food, for shelter, for money, for the Metro. Um, I did not and could not and felt I could not say anything. And people have asked me, you know, wasn't there anyone for you to go to? No, this was the boss. This was the head of the agency. There, there was no one else at that time uh, to, to share this with. And like so many survivors, I think that first assault, you know, I experienced a dissociation that for me lasted throughout my career through decades. You know, I've done so much work at this point to live my life in a very present way, but the ramifications of definitely that sort of first assault and the dissociation that transpired, I think disabled me from being able to speak up or speak out. Um, and did you think of leaving? Was that, a, was that an option in your mind at that time? You know, leaving wasn't even an option. And, and it's as if I couldn't even think out of the box. You know, I felt, and I was, you know, h- held hostage by this person because of my age, because of my vulnerabilities. Um, so it it didn't even occur to me to leave. And let's face it, I didn't, you know, have parents I was in touch with at that point. And mind you, you know, I was a minor, I, I didn't even have a passport. So elite actually was responsible for, you know, getting me a passport and getting all my papers to go to Paris, France, but that Homeland Security would even allow a child, you know, out of the country and into another country without parental consent is kind of mind blowing. Wow. Um, yeah. So for me, there really wasn't, there were, there were no options and I couldn't even entertain, you know, I didn't even know how to put together, uh, you know, where I would go and what I would do. I don't even think I could allow myself to think about what options might exist for me. Yeah. And, and so this went on for a couple of months, you said? It did. And then what happened after that? You know, I became so despondent. Um, I became so 
enraged and furious and silent and had nowhere to take it, um, that there was a moment that I actually did push away from his advances. Um, and, and it was made very clear to me that if I did push away from any advances, that I wasn't going to work. I mean, that was just clear. Um, so there were, there, there was a threat, you know, over my head. And again, you know, somebody in a position of power completely abusing that position. Um, but when I did, and, and I think it was more out of, you know, despair that I pushed back. Um, I was sent out of the apartment the next day into the squalor of a horrible models apartment that was like one room. I mean, like just a studio um, with a mattress on the floor and a really bad area of Paris. And, and I didn't work again. Oh my goodness. So there was a consequence. There was absolutely a consequence. And, you know, now, you know, standing with almost 40 other women, um, I see that, that this was the way this person operated, you know, I, I, that I was not alone. However, I absolutely thought I was completely alone and that this was only happening to me. I couldn't see outside of uh, what was what was my life and my reality. Yeah. And the reality is that in your industry, but also outside there, this is happening, has been happening everywhere, right? Yes. People are not alone. And this connection over this is so important. And I want to hear more about standing yeah. in solidarity because I can imagine it must be so powerful to have that support now. Going back to, let's say the five to 10 years after this period that you've just described, we know that trauma can manifest in so many different ways, right? It's not just PTSD, it's anxiety, oh. depression, psychological distress, suicidality, yeah. substance use, so many things. So for you, if you can like, just talk us through what you recall in terms of how this experience manifested. I mean, you described the initial dissociation. It sounds like it was just survival and then you had enough, so you got out. And then after that, how did your modeling career progress and you know, how did the trauma manifest? Yeah, so um, I am so fortunate that at that time, I actually was bit in the face by a dog. And literally. I- Literally, oh my goodness. Literally, okay. not figuratively. Okay. Um, and I, I had to leave, I had to leave Paris. I couldn't work, this was before airbrushing. Um, so I couldn't work. And I made a phone call to, a family that I had met um, through school and they were back in Northern California and they picked me up at San Francisco International Airport and brought me to their farm in Northern California. And I went from, you know, Paris to living on this, you know, amazing little farm that was uh, full of herbalists and midwives. And I stayed in a small little cabin without electricity or running water and basically got my feet in the earth and got my hands in the dirt and started gardening and taking care of myself and healing. And, and I still though, didn't speak to anybody about what had taken place. Um, the people around me knew that something had happened and I wasn't ready to, to talk about what had happened. The dissociation that I experienced with that first assault and then in the months to come, it, 
it was a continuum throughout my life, you know, and the, the trauma response for me, you know, led me down the rabbit hole of, you know, eventually using heroin, um, and definitely using sex and, um, anorexia and a disconnect from any sort of intimate relationships. So it affected my life in every way I have to say. And also I think I went from that time in Paris and then into my life with a, a real disconnection with myself, a disconnection with my sexuality, my femininity and, and a persona was born and it was this tough, bad girl, you know, I can do anything and I'm the only one who can do it and I've got to do everything on my own and solo. And so I became sort of a powerhouse and a force, but it wasn't really my authentic self. It was, um, it was my armor, you know, that I felt that I needed to survive the world. And, you know, I took my hiatus um, for several months and then I really, I decided that I actually, I did want, I did want a career. I actually did want to make money. I wanted some of the conveniences that, that, you know, I thought were possible for me. And so I decided to be the big fish in a small pond and go work as a model um, in San Francisco for, you know, Macy's Emporium, basically doing catalog stuff. And it was super safe. The hours were nine to five. I got paid great. And I started to sort of rebuild myself um, with me in control and me in charge of my career and and sort of re-entered the modeling industry through that. Um, and also decided that I never, ever wanted a big agent again. I never wanted to be part of a big agency that from then on, I would only sort of have uh, a person representing me that I knew and that knew me. Um, and so I found an agent sort of based on that criteria and stuck with uh, staying in California because that felt safer to me, even though most of the work was in New York. Um, I decided to really build up for myself in California. Um, and during that time, you know, Los Angeles was just starting to explode with the industry. Herb Ritz was there. Matthew Ralston was there. They were starting to shoot, um, you know, covers and, and all sorts of stuff in California. And so I kind of hit that just at the right time. In the time where you were building this safe career, mm -hmm. were you like, were you scanning? Were you hypervigilant? You know, did you see any signs of what you had experienced in Paris, even any warning signs? Or was it something that you were, you know, like constructing and avoiding and and staying away from? You know, the, the time that I spent rebuilding, you know, and, and stepping back out into the industry, I did it very strategically. And catalog is like the safest work. Uh, it's it's way more professional than, um, you know, than shooting for the magazines. And so I, but I definitely was on high alert. Um, and I was very gun shy uh, towards male photographers. Um, and I have to say, you know, even, even then, and it, let's face it, you know, San Francisco and Los Angeles market was completely different than Paris and New York. It was much safer. 
Um, but I definitely did experience a lot of the same sort of energetics when I went back to New York and when I went back to Paris, once I sort of had succeeded. So, you know, I, I, it was impossible and is impossible in my view to sort of avoid those players because they're there in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. And how did your initial experience of sexual violence, how did it impact your romantic relationships or dating or intimacy? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I was unable to be, you know, truly authentically intimate in relationships for, I mean, really until I met my current husband and that was in my late thirties, you know, I was, um, absolutely couldn't have an orgasm with, with anyone. Um, I was, it was unbearable to be vulnerable. It was the scariest thing. Um, and so what that looked like was this sort of hypersexualized persona that I put on and of course, you know, already being in the industry and being, you know, dubbed as sort of a sex symbol, there was a whole alter ego that that I presented, you know, and a whole sort of feeling and sense of performance. Um, and that performing entity uh, kept anyone from getting too close to me. And, and it, you know, and it wasn't the truth, but it kept me it allowed me to feel like i was in power and yeah it allows you to interact with the world in a safe yeah. way without yeah. just being vulnerable but yeah. then it's hard because then the who you are on the inside and who you are on the outside are different facets of who you, you know your personality or a construct a construct of your personality absolutely <laughs> yeah no you said that you had therapy so i'm just curious like in this rebuilding phase up until writing the book and then more recently what happened, you know, where was mental health and all of this and coming to terms with what had happened? You know, I, I absolutely was on survival and go mode for a long time. And, um, you know, and obviously was in relationships, but was sort of faking who I was within relationships because God forbid I allow anybody in and get, you know, destroyed or hurt. Um, and it wasn't, you know, that there's, there's so many different compartments of my life. I definitely manifested the assholes. I definitely manifested the men that could not be available for me. Um, I manifested abusive relationships, you know, trying to work out and sort out, you know, what had transpired. And none of this was really, you know, conscious. It was just sort of how I was operating. And I think I operated in that very destructive way until, you know, until actually life stopped me. Um, right before I turned 30, I actually had to have uh, non-invasive heart surgery um, because of my anorexia. So anorexia was definitely a big piece of this. When I was in Paris, um, this is not just my story, but many other women's, you know, we, I was publicly weighed. So I was forced to go get on a scale um, and was also given cocaine by my agent so that I would stay skinny. Um, so this was the beginning of a long relationship with anorexia. And of course, anorexia was a way of being in control again. You know, if I could control what I was putting in my body and be the controller of the punishment or the rewards, um, 
you know, I, I was in control. And so this finally, um, you know, manifested in, in a, a heart condition that I had to have um, non-invasive heart surgery for right when I was turning 30. And that was a really, really big wake up call for me. Um, and it was when I actively started to go to therapy and, and really work on myself. And, you know, there, there were so many pieces and, and places in my life where I, I wasn't well. And I had really cleaned up most things by 29. However, you know, this one piece that, that I'd been living with for so long, which was disordered eating, you know, came to the surface in terms of how my physical body was dealing with the trauma um, and, and that constant deprivation. And so it, it was the beginning of a much deeper dive into my mental health and, you know, how was I doing and what was the internal conversation, you know, that was taking place. And so all of these sort of elements and aspects of myself that had not come to the surface all came up at 30 and like, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to do some serious work. Um, and it was the beginning of an incredible spiritual journey. Um, the beginning of, several treks that I made to Nepal on humanitarian missions and, and really stepping out of my comfort zone and stepping out of the life that I, I had lived. Um, and, and I was able to gain perspective of both the world and my place in the world and how I fit into the world um, and really started to tap into my own sense of purpose. Yeah. So it sounds like that was, like you said, a wake up call, but a real turning point. And, you know, anorexia is one of those illnesses where there are so many physical complications and you're describing your heart. I mean, that's yeah, you know, something that people don't realize. And could you just tell me, you know, what, what is the heart condition that you had or how did it affect your heart? Yeah, I started, um, I started having, heart palpitations, my heart started racing, my heart would slow, I was having fainting spells. And so it ended up that I had three holes in my heart that needed to be cauterized. Um, and, you know, and again, like talk about vulnerability, you know, to, I look at, I look at, you know, just symbolically, you know, the, what the heart represents. And my heart was broken. Right. You know, my heart was absolutely broken from the life that I, I had lived and from the young person that hadn't been protected. And, you know, I really wanted to come home and have a relationship with myself and really had been in disconnect for decades. Um, and so it was actually, you know, an incredible gift and journey to like go to find my way home back into my heart and fix my broken heart. Um, oh my gosh, the hairs on my arm are standing up as you speak about this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it was an incredible beginning of a homecoming and that's, you know, the greatest relationship that we can have is with, with ourself. And we know, you know, our relationship with the rest of the world, it, it starts with ourself and these are these precious bodies that we get to live in. And, um, and I had not really embodied myself and my purpose and my path, you know, up until that point. And so that journey into heart and home was, 
the hardest, right? The hardest and the most painful. And, and I think we all reach this point in life where, you know, there's nowhere else to go, right? I mean, you can keep running and running and you're going to, you're going to absolutely, you're going to burn out. Um, exactly. Yeah. Whether it's your body giving up or emotionally feeling overwhelmed or stress taking over, our body tells us what we need. We don't always listen to it, you know? And I think, you know, what you described, it's so devastating, also a beautiful metaphor, right? With your heart, but like, how do we prevent people from having to get to that point? Oh my God. Right? <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, and how, you know, you with a family that you described, having that school experience that you described, if you had the right supports in place outside of all of that, the right community, the right, you know, safety nets, whether it's your doctor or school or society and the way we treat certain things like dyslexia, yeah. you know, that could have gone a long way. And also then workplace supports, of course, as well. So, yeah. you know, hopefully, I mean, we're living in a little bit of a different era, but still, I think a lot of people go through in isolation what you've gone through. Walk us forward. Um, you wrote a book about 10 years ago, or I guess 11 years ago, where you opened up. And I would love to hear a little bit about, in the context of the spiritual path that you described, perhaps meeting your husband, Yeah. on the why. Why did you decide to come forward? What was that process like for you to think about deciding to write a book? And then what happened thereafter? Yeah. You know, I, I think I... I can speak for so many mamas, you know, you be, I became a mother and my life changed, you know, to become a mother to daughters and to walk through that door and into that journey. And it's the most profound, um, incredible path and, and it's intense, you know, it's a constant mirror. And when I had my daughters, um, I just started to look at the world in a very different way and started to tune into the life that I had lived and, you know, how can I make the world a better place for my girls? And, and it became um, really clear that I, I did not want them ever to have to normalize sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual assault. I didn't want them to ever have to endure that. And, you know, one of the things that, that I did along with so many of the women that, that I now stand with in the industry is we all compartmentalized, you know, what took place and tried to normalize, like, you know, sexual assaults is, this is just what happens to teenagers in, you know, in the modeling world. And when I became a parent, I just, I realized that it was my duty and responsibility to do all that I could and can to make the world a better and safer place. And for me, that that had everything to do with sharing my story and not normalizing it, but finally naming um, what it was that that took place. And it was an intense process. You know, I sat down and um, my daughters were quite young. And I sat down to write my book and I remember going through the vetting process with HarperCollins and, and them deciding and standing behind me to keep this person's name in the book, um, which was quite incredible. And, 
you know, it was, it was scary. I was not sure what kind of retaliation. I wasn't sure what the industry would say. Um, here I was not just speaking out about an individual, but really about an industry. And what was one of the more uh, disturbing elements is that when my book was published and I went out on my book tour, nobody wanted to talk <laughs> about yeah. the industry abuses. You know, very little questions were asked and it was really met with deaf ears. And it, it spoke volumes to me. And of course, you know, I published pre the Me Too movement and it was... People have trouble with uncomfortable conversations. Um, and this ruffled a lot of feathers and the time was not right, you know, for people to have the conversation. And when I wrote it, I certainly never thought that I was like a standalone. I, I had a sense that, you know, this person had done similar things and other people in the industry had, you know, have, have done similar things. I had no idea that fast forward, you know, 11 years and I would be standing with almost 40 women, um, all with this particular perpetrator with very similar stories, eerily similar. And, you know, what's fascinating about this is, you know, for 10 years, nobody really, well, Sarah Ziff from the Model Alliance reached out right when the book was published and, you know, in a show of support. And that was incredible. But I didn't hear from women for a long time. And it was probably a year and a half ago, you know, they started to trickle in. And, and in fact, it was upon several of the women that have come forward, it was upon reading my book and, and how eerily similar their assaults were to mine, that it actually sort of woke something up in them. Like, wait a minute, this actually did happen. And this happened to other women too. Um, so really the motivation behind coming forward was and is to, to make my contribution and, and be a responsible citizen and do all that I can to make definitely the world, but this industry, a, a safer place, um, than it previously has been. And I have to say too, you know, the Model Alliance continues to receive, uh, calls and inquiries from on their, uh, support line and, this is still an unregulated industry and this is still the same industry that my abuse took place in, you know, decades ago. Yeah. And can I ask you, does this coincide, the, at least the women coming forward and the whole process starting with COVID? And I only ask that because what I've seen is that in COVID with quarantine, people have had to sit with themselves and emotions <laughs> catch up and there's the opportunity to reflect whether you like it or not. I'm just curious if this plays into how this has happened. You know, I'm not sure. I think this process, it's, it's quite possible. It's definitely quite possible that it has had an impact. And yeah, a lot of us have had to sit with uncomfortable, have, we've had to sit with ourselves. <laughs> and yeah. we've had a lot of time to ponder and consider. And I also think, you know, the discussion post- me too. Um, and with other industries, you know, speaking out about sexual harassment and sexual assaults, we, we all are in this global wake up right now that, you know, I really look at, especially with this industry, you know, we were all groomed and conditioned to tolerate, you know, 
to tolerate all of these behaviors in the workplace and to not question them. And I can say hands down all the women that I stand with today, without question, we were all groomed and conditioned um, really to never question those in power. And, and the other piece to this, and we see this still within the industry, is there were so many players complicit. Um, there were so many other bookers and agents that knew what was going on. And, you know, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. And it's something I think we all need to take a look at um, in terms of, you know, when, when any of us have looked the other way or tried to normalize something that is abusive. Um, I think we've all done that in our lives at some point, And this is to sort of the umpteenth degree within this situation within the industry. Yeah. And, and just to go back a little bit for people who may not know. So about one and a half years ago, because of your book that you had written a decade ago, people came forward against the same perpetrator. And now a criminal investigation has been opened up. That is correct. So, there, yeah, there there is a criminal investigation that uh, was opened up a year ago in September Um I and several other women came forward first with our legal testimonies. We filed them in Paris, France. So it opened up a criminal investigation. Uh, we do not have a case yet because we are all sadly time barred and outside of the statute of limitations. Um, and I'll just add to that, that um, I filed under the Child Victim Act um, at the end of August, right before that window closed, there was a one-year window open in the state of New York uh, for anyone who's a minor who was sexually abused and sexually assaulted. Um, and a one-year window was open for them to file any legal claims against their perpetrators. And my motivation actually for doing that was um, when I heard that Cosby walked and I am friends with several of those survivors, I... I was just devastated and heartbroken um, that we have such a broken system that somebody who is a perpetrator of some 60 something women um, could walk on a technicality. Mm -hmm. And I was the only one within this group of survivors. I mean, really when I got that news about Cosby walking it, it I felt even more of a responsibility to do all that I could do. Um, and I'm the only survivor from my particular group that was able to take advantage of the Child Victim Act um, because I was the only one who was a minor who was actually trafficked through the state of New York. So, I mean, it's sad, but I was in the right place at the right time to be able to take advantage of that, whereas the other survivors could not. Okay. And in the, gosh, so it's unresolved still. It sounds like everything's pending. So how has this been for you psychologically in the past year? That's a big question, but like, what if, what have you experienced, you know, the ups and downs, fear, you know, just yeah. describe it. You know, it's been, it's been everything. It's been empowering. It's been terrifying. It's been re-traumatizing. It's been exhausting. Um, I really, you know, because I have done so much work, it actually kind of took me for a bit of a spin because, you know, I, let's just say the body keeps the score. You know, I really realized um, that there was still trauma within my, within my psyche, within myself, within my physical body. And to go back through this and, 
speak about it. And then, you know, I just, I actually just gave a six hour deposition in Paris, France. Um, and it's been incredibly intense and emotional. Um, and that being said, it's been incredibly, you know, I know that what I'm doing is the right thing. Um, but I've definitely had to resource myself and make sure that I have the support that I've needed in this past year. And that's everything from like self-care to making sure I am like on my meditation practice and I am getting out in nature and I'm, I'm in therapy and just really being proactive about my own mental health. Um, that's been essential to get through this year. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, also you're a mother now of two teenage girls. Yep. So, and you started this after you um, had your first child. So what does all this mean for them or for you in the context of being a mother? Yeah, it's, it has been, um, it's been incredible looking at this through the lens of being a mother. I mean, I have my eldest daughter is 14 turning 15. So close to when I was having so much trouble at home and, and leaving home. Um, and I'm able to see how young and vulnerable, <laughs> you know, I was and that she is. And it's also been incredible to bring this conversation into our home. Um, it's very real. And I've been you know, over the years, it's been age appropriate discussions. And now, you know, the girls know exactly, they know exactly why I went to Paris, France. They read the articles that come out. They're incredible support systems, but also, you know, it's, it's informing them as well. Just some of the things that happen in the world and that they also get to see, you know, I'm married to an incredible man. You know, their dad is, one of the most kind, gentle, amazing, supportive men that that walks this earth. And so they're also able to see, you know, that something like this can happen and we can heal and we can move on to have incredibly successful relationships and, you know, be intimate and have love and all of these pieces. So it's been a really interesting journey um, this past year of just kind of like, you know, everything has been has been on the table. Um, and, and it's been quite sweet as well. Just like, look, this is, this is what life is like. Sometimes it's messy, you know, exactly. it's, messy and it's real and we can be vulnerable and we can ask for help. And we're going to have our down days and moments that mommy feels small and then moments that, you know, we feel really strong as well. So Exactly. But we learn from our experiences, our resilience, and we heal and we move forward. And, and, you know, the other piece of this is these things happen to me, but they don't define me, you know, and they've not crippled me. Um, There are definitely some horrible things that happened in my life and, and it's not who I am, you know? And so I've really watched too, you know, taking a look at sort of deconstructing the story and, you know, the story is intense and the story is there, but the story is not who I am and it does not limit me or define me. If you can reflect back, what are the things that have kept you going? What are the things that help you psychologically, spiritually, emotionally? 
Yeah, so I've been a practicing Tibetan Buddhist for 30 years. So my meditation practice and, you know, looking through the lens of compassion and really doing a deeper dive and, you know, taking a look, daring to take a look at why people do what they do. And, you know, if we are to look through the lens of compassion, you know, my perpetrator, no doubt, had some horrific trauma happen to him when he was younger. And, and the whole world is made up like this, you know. And so it's been really important for me to pause and to consider. And it's the same way. Like, I have an incredible relationship with my parents today. Why? Because I recognize they did the best they could with what they had. And, um, and they're amazing people. And... So some of the things that have been really important for me in this past year and, and just moving through all of this is definitely my Buddhist practice, my belief, knowing and trusting that there is good in the world. You know, there's bad, but there's also good in the world. And I believe in justice and not just, you know, putting someone behind bars like that for me actually isn't justice. Justice is actually making something out of this story and doing the good that I can do and doing my best to change and make the world a safer place. Um, definitely being, having an incredible spouse, that's been something that has helped me so much get through this challenging time. And then being a mother, you know, and, and you can't go down a rabbit hole. I mean, I'm sure you can, but I really <laughs> want to, because I have to hold space for my daughters. And also it's given me the perspective, like I want them to grow up and know that there, there is a good world out there. Bad things can happen, but it's an incredible, it's an incredible life. And I think it's really important, our perspective and how we, uh, we meet the world with that. So final question. Yeah. Um, we asked this of all of our guests. If you had 50 million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about mental health? And it could be mental health in the context of sexual violence or workplace sexual violence. I, I think one of the biggest things, and it's because something, you know, it's, it's something that I experienced is I so thought I was alone. Um, and that was such an agonizing long journey, um, quite debilitating, you know, to think that I was alone and really, you know, you're not alone. I wasn't alone. Um, and this, you know, ultimately we're all trying to be in connection. And I, I believe that that connection first starts with ourself. Um, yeah. Thank you, Carrie, so much. Your story is powerful, and I really appreciate your how brave you are in having opened up like a decade ago, but also opening up with us here and what you're doing now and sharing your story. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Allie. Of course. Now, let's get clinical. Let's review Carrie's story. Carrie is a model, survivor, mother, and author, and at the tender age of 17, left for Paris and experienced repeated sexual violence in the workplace by someone in a position of power. As we heard from Carrie, she dissociated, she became despondent, and then three months later, despite the threat that her career may be over, she pushed away his advances, and life as she knew it changed. 
She eventually left Paris and restarted her life on the West Coast, but the effects of her traumatic experience stayed with her. From heroin to sex to anorexia, it affected her life in every way. She was disconnected from herself, and in her words, a persona was born, a tough bad girl with thick protective armor. After this, Carrie rebuilt her career through catalog and never wanted a big agent again. However, around the age of 30, she had cardiac complications from anorexia, which resulted in heart surgery. This was a pivotal turning point in her life. It was from here that she started to do the work to heal. About a decade ago, after becoming a mother, she decided to write a book and name her perpetrator. But it was not until about one and a half years ago that her story gained momentum. She now stands in solidarity with many other women after she and a dozen other survivors testified against her perpetrator. The criminal investigation is ongoing. She knows now that she is not alone. Three things stand out to me from a clinical perspective. First, Carrie's early childhood risk factors. Second, sexual violence as an unfortunately pervasive ill in our world. Third, anorexia and its complications. On the first, what about Carrie's early childhood risk factors? Carrie had a challenging family environment, dyslexia and maltreatment in school, and a first love who died by suicide, all of which caused her to implode as a teenager. She ran away, she dropped out of school, and then started modeling. As Carrie describes, all of these factors contributed to what happened ahead in Paris. On the second, sexual violence. Did you know that an astounding one in three women globally have experienced sexual harassment, gender-based physical or sexual violence, according to the World Health Organization? And also, did you know that women are more likely to experience both health and mental health effects from sexual violence? The effects of this kind of trauma are wide and far-reaching. What are the mental health effects? It's not just PTSD that can develop. Trauma can cause psychological distress, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance and alcohol abuse, worsening of other mental health conditions, suicidality, and so much more. If you've experienced sexual violence and are struggling with your mental health, please get help. You are not alone. On the third, what about anorexia and its complications? For those of you who may not know, weight loss, starvation, and malnutrition linked to anorexia can lead to muscle wasting of vital organs such as the heart, brain, liver, kidney, and muscles. And actually, medical complications account for about half of all deaths among people with anorexia, and suicide rates are high. Carrie has come a long way, and even now, as she awaits justice from the criminal investigation, she is reminded palpably and tangibly of what she went through as a mere child at the age of 17. Back to Carrie, she's been through a lot, and as she says, her experiences do not define her. I can't say enough. I am honored to have spoken with Carrie and to hear her perspective on her early childhood and how this made her vulnerable, the trauma she went through, how she rebuilt her career strategically and carefully, and how she embarked on a path of healing, spirituality, motherhood, and the decision to tell her story. Many people struggle with anorexia, exposure to traumatic experiences, and the effects of sexual violence. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power and connection in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. Thanks for listening to Model Mentality. Certain topics discussed in this episode are the subject of an ongoing criminal investigation and civil litigation. The statements and claims expressed by our guests are their own. 
Model Mentality or Mind Studios makes no representation or warranties related to the truthfulness or veracity of any of its guest statements and claims, including as they may relate to any ongoing criminal investigation or civil litigation. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on Model Mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.